Welcome to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski. And today, I'm going to be talking about multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, MISC. It was recently known as the Pediatric Inflammatory Multi-System Syndrome, or that Kawasaki-like illness associated with COVID-19 that's been making the rounds on the national news. And this is a disease process that is very early in both epidemiology and discovery of mechanisms and pathogenesis. So this episode of PEM Currents is going to focus on what information is out there and what questions we still need to answer. So let's start with what's the best case definition available at this time. And this comes directly from the CDC. So you've got to have fever, a temperature of greater than 38 centigrade, or subjective fever for at least 24 hours. You have to have laboratory evidence of inflammation. This includes, but is not limited to, elevated CRP, ESR, fibrinogen, procalcitonin, D-dimer, LDH, IL-6, neutrophils, and or reduced lymphocytes or low albumin. And greater than two organs involved, including cardiac, renal, respiratory, hematologic, gastrointestinal, dermatologic, and or neurologic. As well as no alternative plausible diagnosis. Other causes include bacterial sepsis, staph or strep shock syndromes, myocarditis induced by enterovirus or other viruses, macrophage activating syndrome, and others. And positive for current or recent SARS-CoV-2 infection, the virus that causes COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, by PCR, serology, or antibody test, or COVID-19 exposure within the four weeks prior to the onset of symptoms. So let me summarize that again because that's a lot. So the best case definition per the CDC is fever, lab evidence of inflammation, greater than two organs involved, and no alternative plausible diagnosis, and positive for SARS-CoV-2 by PCR, serology, or antibody, or COVID-19 exposure within the last four weeks. Let's return to how do we define this organ dysfunction. Most of the press is centered, and probably rightfully so, around the cardiac dysfunction that's occurring in children. But some data that I'll present in a moment shows that a lot of these kids are actually having GI symptoms. But you can define organ system dysfunction by clinical and or lab-based criteria. A few examples include cardiac, you've got shock, elevated troponin, fluid refractory tachycardia, need for vasopressors, abnormal echo, coronary artery aneurysms, renal, acute kidney injury, any other sign of renal failure, respiratory, signs of difficulty breathing, hypoxia, respiratory failure, need for ventilation, respiratory acidosis on a blood gas, abnormal chest x-ray or chest CT. Hematologic, you can have evidence of coagulopathy, abnormal bleeding, or concern for venous thrombosis. GI, severe abdominal pain, intractable vomiting, severe diarrhea, abnormal ultrasound or CT of the belly. Dermatologic, skin rashes of all manners are being described currently. And neurologic, seizures, altered mental status, delirium, and coma. Okay, so what do we actually know about the cases that are out there? Well, I'm going to start with two papers that have been published in The Lancet and then discuss some data that was just released during a CDC educational call 
this week. So first, we've got a study from Verdoni published in Lancet, and it's entitled An Outbreak of Severe Kawasaki-Like Disease at the Italian Epicenter of the SARS-CoV-2 Epidemic, an Observational Cohort. What they did was compared the 19 patients that had Kawasaki-like illness before the pandemic and the 10 that have had it since the beginning. Interestingly, only 8 of the 10 were positive for SARS-CoV-2. They saw 7 boys and 3 girls. On average, patients were admitted after 6 days of fever. The characteristics really varied broadly across the 10 children, and the paper, which I'll link in the show notes, provides a table of their clinical and lab characteristics, which I encourage you to take a look at. Six of the 10 had abnormal echocardiograms, and the sodium white blood cell count and leukocyte count and platelet count were lower than in Kawasaki disease. Ferritin was significantly higher in the post-COVID-19 group. Overall, the post-COVID-19 group were sicker with higher Kobayashi and Kawasaki disease shock syndrome scores. Treatments in the post-COVID-19 patients included IVIG, high-dose aspirin, methylprednisolone. The other published series of patients comes from Riphagen, and it's out of London, entitled Hyperinflammatory Shock in Children During the COVID-19 Pandemic. It was also published in The Lancet. They had a limited sample of eight children in mid-April with a hyperinflammatory presentation. All had shock. Six of the eight were Afro-Caribbean descent and five were male. One died. All eight patients tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 through antibody testing. This paper includes a tabular representation of all eight patients. It gives you a sense of how sick they are, their initial presentations, what they look like when they went to the PICU, some of their pharmacological treatment, including pressors, their imaging results, some of their labs highlighting things like the high ferritin that was described in the Italian sample, microbiology results, and some of their outcomes, including PICU length of stay. And now, hot off the presses, following a CDC call, you've got new data from the Royal College of Pediatrics in England and Cohen Children's in Queens, New York. So let's start with the sample of patients from England. What did they learn? They have had 38 cases between March 25th and May 1st. 54% had rash, 57% had abdominal symptoms, and only 32% had respiratory symptoms. Ages range between 1 to 16 with a median of 11 years. Salient lab features included lymphopenia, neutrophilia, high D-dimer, high troponin, and high CRP. Many of the children had normal chest x-rays. Chest CTs showed nodular ground glass opacities. Those that received abdominal ultrasound or CT, some of them looked normal. Others showed free fluid and ascites, while others had evidence of bowel inflammation. Echocardiogram results were not available on all patients, but 8 of the 19 that did had depressed systolic function. 5 of the 19 had dilated coronary arteries and aneurysms. All patients went to the ICU and these patients needed fluid resuscitation, 70% needed inotropes, and two-thirds of the patients were treated with IVIG. The majority did well. Unfortunately, one died. PCR, SARS-CoV-2, there were 12 positive and 7 negative. All 19 were positive for IgG antibody. Thus far, they've concluded that we have a new and unusual illness emerging about a month after the initial COVID-19 curve. Distinct features from the patients in London include elevated troponin, high D-dimer, high CRP, high BNP, and prominent cardiac injury. 
Their hypothesis is that this is not direct viral injury, but instead a sequelae of acquired immunity. Now let's turn to the data from Queens, New York, from Cohen Children's. This comes between April 17th and May 13th. There's 43 reported thus far, but the sample they discussed on the CDC call was 33. Patients ranged in ages from 2 to 17 years with a mean of 8.6 years. 61% were male, and most of the kids were normal without significant comorbidities, though 15% did have reactive airway disease. On average, they had fever for four days. 58% had neurocognitive symptoms, 97% had GI symptoms, and 70% presented in shock. Complete Kawasaki features were seen in 40%. 70% of those patients presented in shock. Four-fifths of the sample went to the PICU. Many were IgG positive and PCR negative. 70% of the patients had acute kidney injury, and only 18% required mechanical ventilation. 58% of the patients had any evidence of cardiac dysfunction, and half had evidence of coronary artery abnormalities. All of the patients got treated with IVIG, some of the second dose, while 70% got methylprednisolone. Other treatments included high-dose aspirin, anakinra, tocalizumab, infliximab, and enoxaparin. Fortunately, none of these 33 patients died, but a little more than one in four left the hospital with mildly depressed cardiac function. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg, because cases have been described in many states in the United States and in other parts of the world as well. We also can't say with certainty when this illness is likely to occur. Does it occur at the same time as SARS-CoV-2 infection, COVID-19, or does it happen a month to six weeks afterwards? Time will tell. All right, so what should you do if you see a kid and you think that they have MISC in your emergency department? First, don't panic. It's possible the kid has roseola, scarlet fever, or many of the other syndromes common in childhood. But if they're ill-appearing, given the current pandemic, you should think about MISC. So based on what I've learned, you should have a high index of suspicion, and if the child is ill-appearing, work them up. If your hospital has a protocol or process, then follow it. If not, then I'd consider getting the following labs. CBC with differential, blood culture, a renal and electrolyte panel, get an albumin if it's not included in that, get a hepatic profile, mostly for the transaminases, ESR, CRP, procalcitonin, LDH, fibrinogen, D-dimer, troponin, beta-natriuretic peptide, BNP, urinalysis, and, of course, testing for SARS-CoV-2, either by RT-PCR, serology, or antibody testing. Other labs that people have discussed and will be variably available depending on where you work are IL-1, IL-6, IL-10, creatine kinase, and triglycerides. You should also get an EKG and a chest x-ray, and any patient with shock or evidence of cardiac dysfunction should have an emergent echo, ideally by a pediatric cardiologist. Imaging should be targeted to symptoms and findings. You know, think abdominal ultrasound or CT if the patient has severe belly pain, which was very common in the sample from Queens, New York. This kind of seems like a shotgun approach. And those of you that work with me know that I'm kind of a non-tester, but this is an emerging illness. And so, yes, you're trying to use these labs to help you make a diagnosis. But more than that, we're really trying to define the illness and figure out what helps us make a diagnosis and what helps us assess risk. So getting more labs 
though it seems superfluous initially, some of that data can really be useful on the back end. With regard to initial treatment, I don't need to tell you how valuable the ABCs are. Oxygen, fluid resuscitation, pressors for patients who are fluid refractory. Remember, you can give epi and even norepi through a peripheral IV for a limited period of time as long as you are assessing the site and response frequently. Treatments that will likely be deployed include IVIG and high-dose aspirin. The jury's out on methylprednisolone, and the CDC called, they said, well, maybe don't use it unless it's part of a trial. Other treatments that are being discussed, but obviously are not to be used in the emergency department, include anakinra, which is an IL-1 agent, tocalizumab, IL-6, infliximab, which is TNF, enoxaparin, things that modulate GMCSF and JAK, and more to come down the pipeline. But these are mostly therapies for the inpatient setting. Again, in the emergency department, have a high index of suspicion, work the kid up, and manage the ABCs with an understanding that there's a high potential for cardiac and GI involvement. Ongoing work from the DIAMONDS trial in the UK and BATS, which is the best available therapy study, as well as oncoming work from PERN, will hopefully define this illness better. And one final thing before I close this episode out. This is making a lot of parents very anxious. So if a kid comes into your emergency department with fever and looks a little sick, and the parent's worried about MISC, how should you talk to them? First, be understanding and compassionate. Trying to convey this with full PPE on can be challenging, but do your best. Remember, though the news said this was a Kawasaki-like illness, and this makes sense to us, parents have not heard of Kawasaki either, so all of this is very foreign. Be upfront and honest about the level of uncertainty thus far, and understand that the parent's biggest fear is that their child is going to die from this. I know it's hard to inspire confidence in a family when you may not be confident about the diagnosis itself. We're all doing the best that we can, and we'll do it together. All right, well, that's it for this episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I know that multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children is clearly a work in progress in terms of defining the case definition and especially treatments. I would highly encourage you to look at the published studies from The Lancet, as well as the information provided on the Tuesday, May 19th CDC Clinician Outreach and Communication webinar. I have a post I wrote about MISC on PEMblog.com, and there's been a lot of conversation about this illness on Twitter. You can follow me there at PEMTweets. I've also got a Facebook page. If you've got a free moment, drop me a line on Twitter, leave a comment on the blog, or a review for the podcast. I'd really appreciate the feedback. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.